following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord Jesus, we have remembered you today. We have celebrated uh, your death, reminded of your resurrection, encouraged that you have conquered sin, conquered Satan and death, and that your sacrifice was sufficient that we could be forgiven, we could have fellowship with you, that we could be made right, and that our sin, that the punishment that our sin deserves has been paid for by your blood and We're so grateful. Lord, bless our time in Your Word that that we'd be moved to to honor that sacrifice, to honor You. By Your Spirit, may You empower us to understand and obey. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm sure you've heard of the phrase, uh, public enemy number one, right? Um, Do you know where it came from? Uh, some believe that it originated in ancient Rome. There was a Latin phrase, I don't know if I'll pronounce this correctly, but uh, hostis publicus, or enemy of the people. It was a phrase that was referencing those who were acting against society. In fact, in 68 AD, uh, Nero was declared by the Senate as a hostis publicus. And then that phrase, public enemy, was adopted in the 1930s here in the States in Chicago by the Chicago Crime Commission. It was adopted as a means to publicly shame and denounce particularly the many gangsters that were operating within the city in the 30s. Uh, In fact, do you know who the first public enemy number one was? Al Capone. That's right. Al Capone. The FBI under J. Edgar Hoover, they adopted the phrase to make the public aware of those criminal fugitives, those who had committed crimes who were on the loose. And so they formed this list of public enemies in order to hopefully um, make more folks aware so that they could be captured. That list of public enemies became known later as the FBI's 10 most wanted. And while the FBI has its list, so too does the church. Because there are many enemies, a list of enemies who are committed to the harm of the spiritual good of the church. Who do you think would top that list? Who do you think is the greatest enemy of the church? Who can cause more spiritual harm and is the greatest threat to our soul? What enemy is the greatest hindrance to our walk with Christ? Now, Satan would be the obvious choice, wouldn't he? Uh, he is definitely formidable. He's a dangerous adversary. He's committed to bring harm to the church. He's committed to, to bring and sling mud upon the name of Christ to hinder his work. Uh, we sang earlier, Paul in Ephesians 6.12, he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but and he meant they're not other people, but it's against Satan and his demonic forces. But as powerful an enemy as Satan is, he's not the most powerful enemy to the church. He's not the greatest hindrance to your walk with Christ. For as powerful as Satan is, he cannot cast you in hell. 
He cannot make you disobey. He cannot force you to violate the commands of Christ. Satan cannot block your fellowship with God. But there is something that can. My greatest spiritual enemy is not Satan. And again, I'm not diminishing that he is powerful. I'm not diminishing that he is indeed a a great enemy, but he's not the greatest. The greatest enemy is my sin. Public enemy number one for Tim Carnes is Tim Carnes. My lust, my pride, my anger, my bitterness, my selfishness, my laziness. There you got the list of my struggles right there. But my greatest enemy, the greatest threat to my soul, the greatest threat to this church, to you, to your spiritual good is not out there, but in here. Satan can indeed tempt us to sin. And again, he's very good at it, but he cannot make us sin. He cannot force us to disobey. James 1.14 says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. See, I choose to sin. You choose to sin. And it is that sin which hinders our relationship with God. It is that sin which causes damage in our lives, in our homes, in this church. For you see, I'm not as worried about what Satan can do to Calvary Bible Church. Again, though we are aware, I'm more concerned about what our sin can do to Calvary Bible Church. Satan has been on attack against the church for millennia, and he will continue to do so. But remember, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. But my sin, our sin, sin has leveled many a church That is the greatest adversary. And if we would see ourselves as a beautiful and pure and holy bride of Christ, if we would see ourselves growing into maturity as a body to look like Jesus, if we would see ourselves unified, advancing the gospel as we've been called to do, if we would see ourselves becoming like Jesus, then we must deal with our sin as public enemy number one. That has to be our focus, our greatest fight Again, not ignoring Satan, but recognizing he's not the one that can do the most damage. It is my sin that can do that. And it is each and every one of us. For just as a disease can begin from a single cell, so too can the body be defiled by a single person's ongoing sin. Again, your sin and and my sin does great damage, but not only to the person sinning, but also to the rest of the body. And perhaps you've noticed the sermon title today was what? Fellowship, right? And you may be wondering at this point now, now if the topic's fellowship, why are we talking about sin and being, sin being our greatest enemy? And indeed, when we often think of fellowship, we think of it as being together. We think of it as spending time with one another, uh, speaking about the Lord with one another, praying for one another, having fun together, and of course, eating, right? Can't, can't be real fellowship if there's not food. But there's one aspect of fellowship that isn't often talked about. There's one component of fellowship that doesn't get addressed a lot. And that is dealing with one another's sin. Now, some of you think, well, okay, wait a minute. Where where do you get the notion that fellowship involves addressing one another's sin or that being brought up? I mean, isn't that a personal thing? Isn't my sanctification my responsibility? Isn't it something I need to work on with the help of? And the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. 
something that I need to do on my own. I mean, Galatians 5.16 says, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Romans 8.13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Don't these passages indicate then that it's not somebody coming bugging me about my sin, but it's only by the power of the spirit that I can obey Christ. Isn't that what those passages are talking about? Yes, it is true. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can forsake sin. But the question is, what are the means that the Holy Spirit uses? How does he empower you to put to death the deeds of the body? How does he deliver you from your sinful desires? What what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Holy Spirit uses ultimately his word, right? In fact, the, the scriptures are called the sword of the spirit right ultimately he uses that and he uses it not only through reading not only through sermons not only through studying his word but he also uses it through bringing it by one another through one another and it's my aim this morning to not only convince you of that from scripture but also to show you how to do that because i believe today's version of christianity here in america has has become so ineffective for christ because we we don't deal with one another's sin in the way that god wants us to we don't address this issue in our lives in the way that that he has designed his church to function we've just kind of got well you know what we're all sinners christians sin and that you know that's just part of what happens Farther, we we simply ignore each other's sin by not saying anything. Just, well, I'm not going to say anything there. Or maybe we do say something, but the person responds in such a way or it brings a strife or conflict. They go, okay, I'm just going to drop it. I'm not bringing that up again. Or some of us may bring up another sin, but we do it in a harsh manner, a judgmental manner, a, a manner which actually causes more sin rather than to help with the issue. And these are all ways that we may approach this whole topic of sin in one another's life and not in the right way. And so sin continues. The unity of the church is undermined. The ability of the church to make disciples, which is what we're called to do, right? That becomes hindered. And brothers and sisters, I don't want any of us to be so naive not to think that it is not happening here. And that's why this morning... We're going to consider the topic of fellowship, but I want us to focus our attention specifically on one key component of that fellowship, and that is how we come alongside one another in regards to our sin. So today we'll look at three principles of coming alongside one another. The first is to pursue. We must pursue one another. Paul encourages that pursuit in Romans fifteen fourteen when he says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. That word admonish has this idea of, of warning, exhortation, appeal, urging, even a rebuke. It's to instruct somebody who is on the wrong path of how to get back on the right one. Because if we see somebody going down the wrong path, we're not to sit idly by and, and say nothing and do nothing. In fact, I remember one time I was helping a buddy move, helping his family move out of their place. And uh, we were moving some stuff and another friend of mine came up to me and he was holding a box, a box he was about ready to put in the truck. Trunk, uh, truck. And the lid was, was not closed. And so he opens the lid and I look inside and there's a stack of dirty magazines in there. And the guy looks at me and he goes, what, what do I do? And I said, what do you mean, what do you do? Go talk to him. 
And the guy, he looked at me as if I just told him to shoot his dog or something. He's like, what? Me? So I, I grabbed the box and I went over to the buddy that we were moving. You know, I took him aside and I, I just, I opened it up. And he, I had a look of horror on his face. And I said, hey, look what I found. Um, and you know what? He was embarrassed, as you can imagine. He was offended and he was, but that one act opened up a great conversation with him about that struggle in his life something no one else had known about and it was an opportunity that we had to to talk about that and to for me to come alongside him and needless to say the box went in the trash but the conversation didn't end there my brother was in trouble and I wasn't going to sit idly by and just say, well, you know, it's not my business. This is kind of uncomfortable. This is pretty embarrassing. I'm not going to bring it up with him. I couldn't do that. He needed me to pursue him. He needed me to bring it up. He needed me to point it out to him. He needed me to warn him, to admonish him, to instruct him, to come alongside him. It was my responsibility in that moment. Actually, it was my friend's responsibility. But he blew it. Galatians 6.1 makes our responsibility to each other very clear. Brethren, if, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. If you see sin in my life, you are commanded to pursue me. If I see sin in your life, I must pursue you. You must pursue one another. This is not optional. It's commanded. God's instruction to us, and it's not only for church leaders. In fact, did you catch Romans 15, 14, Galatians 6, 1, to whom those verses were addressed to? In both of them, it says, my brethren, brothers, all the saints, all of us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. You see, it's the responsibility of all of us. Here he says to admonish the unruly. We see the same idea in excuse me, Hebrews chapter 3. If you could please turn there. Hebrews 3. I think in this passage we find the, one of the clearest instructions, I think, from the Lord as to our responsibility in one another's sanctification. In helping one another deal with our sin. The overall purpose of the book of Hebrews, it was a book that was... Uh, originally a sermon written to demonstrate that Jesus is the only mediator, the only one who can bring men to God, the only one who can bring salvation, the only one who could provide forgiveness of sins. He's the great high priest. And the author of Hebrews was emphasizing that fact because there were many that he was addressing that were considering turning back from Christ to Judaism, to going back to their old ways. And so throughout this book where he's giving this um, emphatic statement of the of the the ability of Christ, that who Christ is and what he has done and that his work and his work alone, solus Christus, that that is the only way anyone can be saved, that anyone can be forgiven. As he is developing that point all throughout the book, there are these warning sections where he then addresses specifically those who are considering turning away from the only means of salvation. Hebrews 3 verse 7 is the first of such warnings. 
It is there that he quotes from Psalm 95 and he brings up the example of the people of Israel in the days of Moses when despite God's kindness, despite the fact that he had delivered them, despite all that he had done for them, there were many who did not believe, who did not trust God and were wanting to walk away, to go back to their old life. And again, that was the same temptation facing those to whom the author of Hebrews was addressing. And so he says in Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here he's saying, just as the people of Israel, they fell prey to unbelief, so too can you. Take care, brothers. Be careful. Be aware. And so he warns them here, pay attention lest you end up in the same place where you walk away from the only true God. And notice here, how is it that he says they were to fight the temptation of unbelief? Was it something they were to pursue on their own? Was this an individual effort? Was it to be treated as a private matter? What does he say here? Again, verse 12, brothers, brothers, pursue one another. He uses the word encourage one another day after day. Don't become hardened by sin. That word encourage is this word parakaleo. It's to to come alongside, to come to one's aid. It can mean to exhort or to encourage, to urge, to appeal, to implore. And the sense here is, is coming alongside one another, exhorting and urging to trust in Christ, to not give in to the temptation of unbelief. And we see the end of verse 13, why this exhortation is so crucial. For again, we are reminded just how dangerous sin is. That it can produce, that it's so deceitful, it can produce a hardened heart. A heart that is unwilling to repent. A heart that could even turn away from the Savior. That's how dangerous it is. That is how careful we must be in addressing it. And that's why Hebrews 3.13, he says, Brethren... All of us need to be involved. We need to come alongside one another. For if if you're the only one dealing with your sin, if there's nobody else in your life that's coming alongside you, if it's just you, you're in trouble. That's like the fox guarding the hen house. What's going to happen then? You're going to come out the next day. Are are every hen going to be there? What do you think? Probably not, no. In fact, my, my parents just built this. They have a bu- they got a bunch of chickens last year, so they built this like fortress because <laughs> they live up in the Sierras. And there's bears and coyotes and all kinds of things. They've got like this chain link fence with. I mean, it's imp- it's impregnable. And why is that? They don't want any predators in there. And sin is a predator. It's a predator in our own lives. It is so dangerous. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, who, who else is in your life? Is there anyone that you are transparent with in regards to your struggles? Is there anyone that you have that comes alongside of you? And not just for friendship, but also who asks you the hard questions and who is willing to admonish you when you need it? If not, why not? Why would you risk it? Why would you risk it? Why would you risk doing it on your own? Why why would you ignore this warning about sin's deceitfulness? Why would you take on your most powerful enemy alone? If you have an armed robber in your home, I guess unless you're Chris Kadamian, would you take him on on your own? No, you'd run, right, first, right, Chris? 
get Lori out of there and then go. But would you take that person on alone? Right? You would, you'd call for help, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, that's help. Right? But, but yet we have a more powerful, more dangerous, more threatening enemy. And many of us are taking him on alone, just standing there. All right, go ahead and shoot me. We're blinded. Get in a small group. Get in a fellowship group. Meet regularly with another believer or two and open up to him or her about your struggles, about what tempts you. If you don't, you run the risk of going down the same road as those Israelites who walked away from God. And they saw him daily, the pillar and the cloud. They heard him from the mountain. They knew that God had delivered them, but they walked away. And I've seen this more times than I care to remember. Many people even who had invested in my life spiritually, who were my spiritual mentors, many of them who no longer follow Christ. Don't risk it, brothers and sisters. Don't risk it. In addition to pursuing, having others pursue you, again, I want to remind you, the call here, you need to be pursuing others. You need to be coming alongside of others. And, and I am certain that this is not the first time that most of you have not heard this. I'm certain that Hebrews 3.13, most of you have heard this verse before. I'm confident in that. My question is, are you doing it? Are you coming alongside another? If not, why not? How come? What is stopping you? Well, I I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to embarrass them. I don't want to show this guy what I saw in his box. That's going to be uncomfortable. That might hinder our relationship. Or you might be thinking, well, I don't want to appear judgmental. I mean, I struggle with things too. I'm not perfect either. I don't want to be seen as a hypocrite. It's not my place to point out their sin. When I do it too, or maybe you might think, well, I don't want my sin exposed, so if I stay out of their business, they'll stay out of my business. Or it could be, and this is one I struggle with a lot, I just don't like conflict. If I bring this up, there's going to be tension possibly. That, that person may not respond in a good way. They, they may be angry with me. We may not have peace in our relationship. And if I say anything, that, that, I just don't want there to be conflict. Or perhaps their sin was against you and and to bring it up, you were just too offended or too hurt to do that. Or for some, a reason is that they're just too busy. If I go talk to that person, it will be this long, drawn out thing. And I I just don't have time right now. God, God will take care of it. God will deal with it in their life. So we pass the buck to God. Do any of these excuses resonate with you? They do with me. They're all the ones I use. But you know, beyond those, I think there's an even bigger reason that we don't come alongside one another regarding our sin. I think ultimately it's because we really don't think sin is that big a deal. They're forgiven. Jesus died for it. We don't see or really believe or understand just how dangerous it is. And that's why I opened this morning talking about that, just how dangerous it really is. We really aren't concerned about the damage that it's going to bring to that person or to the body of Christ. In the end, it shows we really don't care enough about the purity of Christ's bride. I think that's the ultimate reason. That's the main issue. For dealing with our sin, it's more than just an individual issue. It's more than just an individual concern. It's more than just a concern for one another. 
ultimately, the greatest concern here is that we present to Christ a bride that is pure. His bride. The church. The saints. The greatest concern is presenting Jesus with a pure bride. Listen to what, in that section in Ephesians 5, when Paul's addressing husbands and says, Husbands, love your wives. And then that is really an illustration or analogy of the greater truth, which is Christ's relationship to the church. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her. Why? To sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That is profound. That Christ gave himself up for the church why? Why did he do that? To sanctify, having cleansed, to, to present her without blemish so that she would be holy and blameless and pure and spotless. And doesn't he deserve a pure bride? Doesn't he deserve a spotless bride? You agree with me on that one? He does, doesn't he? He's worthy of it. John Piper has said our our sanctification is a community project. And And I would add to that it is a community project for the sake of the bridegroom. So pursue one another. Address sin in one another's lives, not just for their good, not just for our good, but again, it's for Christ's glory. It's that he would be honored because our Savior is worthy of a pure bride. Amen. Beloved, in emphasizing our need to pursue one another, I'm not endorsing a culture here where, okay, we're all the sin police. We got our ticket book in our pocket. We're ready to whip it out. All right, all right I'm going to write you up, buddy. You got that one. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not the culture I think God has designed for his church. But we do need to have a culture that loves Jesus enough and loves one another enough that we come alongside each other and we ask the hard questions, that we come alongside each other with a willingness and desire to help. And we need to remember, it's not a one-time exercise. Right? It wasn't, uh, you know, okay, I showed them the box, I'm done, I'm out of that one, all right. No, it's not a one-time exercise because sin's not a one-time event. Right? Right? It's not. It's an ongoing struggle. And therefore, we need to be pursuing ongoing with each other. Remember Hebrews 3.13, right? It says, come alongside one another day after day. That tells us we are not only to be pursuing, but we're also to persist. Be persistent in that pursuit. Don't give up. Be persistent in this war against sin. This is something Jesus emphasized in Matthew 18. In fact... Let's go over to Matthew 18. Turn there with me for a moment. I know, whenever you hear Matthew 18, it's like, uh uh-oh, church discipline. Here we go. But again, remember the context here. In fact, do you know the verses right before Matthew 18, 15, when he brings up pursuing one another in regards to our sin, do you know what he said there? He gave a parable. He was talking about a parable of the lost sheep. The sheep that was running off that needed to be chased down. And then he says in Matthew 18, 15, right after that, and if your brother sins, go chase them, pursue them, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. 
But if he does not listen to you, take one or more, one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to, to listen to them, and if he refuses, sorry, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Again, we see here, Jesus wants us pursuing, pursuing the one who is in sin. And his desire here isn't public shaming or repudiation. It is restoration, right? It's restoration. He wants his strength sheep back. And he wants the fellow sheep, you and I, to be in that process. But if that sheep continually refuses, it must be removed in order that the sheepfold remain pure. And so not only does he want the sheep's fellow sheep to be in pursuit of him. Notice in verse 15, he says, if your brother sins, go. Go and reprove him. He wants that pursuit to be persistent. We see that in the multiple steps here. He's given us many steps here in that pursuit of the sinning brother or sister to bring them to repentance, to bring them to restoration. And what's the first step he gives here? What is it? You guys know this passage, right? Go and right yourself and reprove him in private, right? You go. You go talk to him. You go talk to him or her. You talk to that brother or sister, not to somebody else, right? But go alone. And we know this, but how often do we not do it? I blow it here too. Either not doing anything, not going to them, or bringing it up with somebody else who doesn't need to be involved. At least not initially, right? The first step is to go, and God says, go to that person alone and private discreetly and talk to them. Now, if you're not sure if it's a sinful issue, you know, sometimes we see things and we don't see them rightly or we improperly judge motives or things like that. And and maybe it's not a sin issue or we're not sure. We don't know how to approach it. Maybe it's a difficult issue. In that case, it would be okay to speak to another believer, but in confidence and only do this if you need help and only do it with a mature believer who can offer wisdom or advice and prayer. Jesus says in verse 15, you must go show them their fault. And show has the idea of bringing to light, of exposing, making clear. And this is not your opinion. This is not something your conviction. There's chapter and verse. And that's where maybe having some advice from a mature believer, an elder or leader might be helpful. Now, the question is, what types of sins should be confronted? What should be brought up? Do I go to a person every time they sin? Is there any criteria which should determine when or if I should go to that person? And remember, if the sin is against you, our first response needs to be willingness to overlook it, to cover it, to believe the best, especially in our homes. Proverbs ten twelve: hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. He who conceals a transgression seeks love, Proverbs 17, 9 says, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. But if the sin is repeated, if it continues on, if you just can't get past it, if it's especially hurtful or if it's something that's very egregious, then you need to go to that person in private and talk to them. Tell them what's on your heart. You approach them graciously, just say, you know, there's something that really I've been praying about and that just I feel I really need to talk to you about. Do you have a minute? Something I want to ask you about. Just come very, very graciously. And most of us don't like to be called out on our sin, though, do we? 
Even if it's done in a gracious way, even if it's done in a loving manner. So what do you do if that person doesn't respond well? Say it gets angry or upset, doesn't want to listen to you, doesn't want to deal with it. What does Jesus say to do in verse 16? If he doesn't listen to you, then, well, just drop it. You tried. Showed him the box. He didn't really listen, so... Is that what Jesus said? No. Right? He says if the other person doesn't listen, if they get angry or don't want to talk about it, you just say, well, I told him, Lord, it's up to you now. I did my part. No, you've only done part of your part. Here is where Jesus wants you to persist and involve someone else. But notice here, only one or two more. Because again, Jesus wants to keep it as discreet as possible for as long as possible. The others you bring in are to be witnesses, not of the sin itself necessarily, but of the refusal to to repent from it. And if possible, choose somebody that knows the other person, particularly someone who's a mature believer who can be involved. And then pray together and go in love to confront that brother or sister and humbly pleading with them to repent and be restored. And, And the one or the two that come are not to be silent because notice Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them. It's not where you just go and watch somebody else. You're all involved at that point. Everybody is saying something. And if your brother or sister doesn't listen, then don't take that. Well, you know what? I talked to them. You're you're just, we're going to go after you now. No, go again. Err on the side of grace. Sometimes it takes a person time to, to process and think through things. And sometimes you learn things and there's an interaction involved. So do it with patience. But if they continue to refuse, Jesus says, well, it's still not over. Jesus wants you to persist by, he says, bringing it before the church. And here at Calvary, that means we we desire, the elders desire, bring it to one of the elders. Let them know about it so that they can be involved. Again, not to hand out punitive judgment, but to get involved and to, to bring some wisdom and encouragement, admonition where needed in order to call that person to repentance and restoration. But if the person continues then the elders will bring them before the church. Again, the purpose is not at that step for humiliation. But for what? Restoration, right? Jesus says if if you, they're going to them and probably going again a few times, if uh, you and someone else going to them, even you and the elders being involved, if it continues on, then let everybody know so that they can not judge, not uh, harshly condemn, but go and appeal. Call them to repentance. Persist, persist, Jesus says. And if the person continues, that's when Christ says they need to be put out of the church for the sake of the purity of his bride. And again, notice from this passage, there's a a diligence there. There's a perseverance there. There's a persistence. Step after step after step. Jesus says, keep going, keep going. Bring more, bring more. But I want the sheep restored. Don't give up. Yes, it it may be difficult. Yes, you may be attacked. Yes, you may experience hurtful words. It may harm your relationship with them. There are risks here. But you have to remember, that person is in great peril. The deceitfulness of sin is about to destroy them. Again, think about it. How heartless would it be? You see somebody drowning and you do or say nothing. Right? Oops. That dummy standing too close next to the boat. Well, that's what you get. Right? 
How cruel would that be? How cruel would it be or uncaring to see somebody about to be, you know, struck by a car and not say or do anything? And sin is so much more dangerous. James 5.19 says, My brethren, there it is again, brothers, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Would you want someone to go after you? I do. If you see someone in sin, you need to pursue them. You need to rescue them. So persist in your pursuit as Jesus has called you to do, but do it in the right way. For while some may be prone to, you know, to shy away and not say anything, I think there are others who they confront in very ungodly ways. And that brings us to our third principle of coming alongside a sinning brother or sister, and that is to pursue them persistently, but also, and I was looking for a third P word here, be polite. Be polite. That is, be gracious. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. And coming alongside one another, right? It doesn't give you license to be harsh or judgmental. You're not placed in a position of superiority over that person. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. There must be grace, right? Humility, patience, care. In fact, to see this, look, look over at Galatians 6. Galatians chapter 6. Here Paul gives very helpful instruction on how to come alongside a brother or sister in sin. I referenced this passage earlier. Paul here in Galatians 5, in the middle of the chapter, he's been calling us to walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And then he describes the implications of doing that or not doing that in the rest of chapter 5. And then he says this in Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, there it is again. Brothers, if even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Note again here, we are charged to pursue, pursue, go after And the two ways here we're called to do that are to restore and also to bear. Bear one another's burdens. Restore here comes from a word that uh, meant to fix, to to mend a net, to fix a broken bone. It's used figuratively with the idea of bringing a a person who has a, a weakness to wholeness, to completeness. Something that is broken in someone's life when you see them uh, in a sin that they, they need to have you come alongside and repair them to help them. Repair and mend that issue in their life. You're also to bear their burdens, he says. And burden here meant a heavy, heavy weight, a huge load. And here it is, this idea figuratively of a, um, it can be used regarding afflictions, problems, difficulties, sin. And here it's the burden of sin, the weight of sin and, and what that brings, the spiritual weakness it brings. It's, a believer in sin has a great weight upon him or her. He's burdened with the battle of temptation, burdened with the guilt of giving into it, burdened with the consequences of losing those battles. And so when someone has been caught in sin, you are now, we are all now on a rescue operation, not only to get them free, but also help them recover. And it's to that end that Paul here, he identifies three attributes of the rescuer. 
verses 1 to 3. Three qualities that must be present in you as you come alongside a brother or sister. And the first one is that you must be spiritual. He says in verse 1, you who are spiritual, restore. Now that may sound like, oh, okay, so this, he's talking about this, you know, the super mature Christian here, right? That's the spiritual one. One who's been a Christian for, for decades or, or the elder, the deacon, the Sunday school teacher, the, the leader. That's the, that's the spiritual one. Or maybe it's the, the person, right? You know, those folks who walk around, you know, they got the special glow, the aura around them, the halo that follows them around. Like Jim Stone, right? He's got that halo, follows them around. Actually, that's probably Kristen's, isn't it? You just stand close enough that, uh, yeah. Who is that? Who is the spiritual person that he's talking about here? Laura was shaking her head, by the way. <laughs> Laura, <laughs> her, His daughter. <laughs> See, that's what happens when the lights are up enough. I can see everybody here. Um, but given what Paul said a few verses earlier, the spiritual person he's talking about here is the one who's walking by the spirit. That's the spiritual person, one who has the word of Christ dwelling in them richly, one who is communing continually, consistently with God, one who's confessed their sins, one who has yielded him or herself to the lordship of Christ. And as such, displays the fruit of the spirit in their life. And you know what? Any believer can be a spiritual person, whether you're three months old in Christ or 30 years old in the Lord, because any believer can walk by the spirit, right? Right. Any believer can walk by the spirit. Any believer can have his word richly dwelling within them. Any believer can commune with him consistently. Any believer can and should have their life yielded to Christ. And so any believer can be that spiritual person. But if you're not walking by the spirit, then you're not able to restore when you need to. When I need you to bear my burdens, you won't be able to do it. When others here need that, you won't be in a position to come alongside and exhort and and encourage and restore. Again, sanctification is a community project. So for my sake, for the sake of your brothers and sisters here, be a spiritual man, be a spiritual woman, so that you can be one that can come alongside and restore. Second quality Paul describes of the rescuer here is that he or she must also be gentle. Gentle, right? He says, restore in gentleness. This is so important that we grasp this. It's so important. So many think, you know, this, this whole, when you even use the word confrontation, what's the picture that comes to your mind? It's like this stern, harsh, you know, battle. That I, that I need to be uh, this abrasive and unyielding and I need to be stern. <laughs> You're sinning, right? You put that scowl on your face. But that's not the case at all here, is it? Rather, as verse 2 says, it is to be done in, in gentleness. That, that's a, a humble attitude that does not have the desire to judge, to revenge, or, or to uh, get retribution. You see, your objective is not to crush a person or render final judgment. Your objective is to restore them, to bring them back to a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that requires gentleness. Matthew twelve twenty. it says of Jesus, a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Such a wonderful description of our Savior as one who, someone who's in the throes of sin, who's battle in life and struggles and trials and difficulties and afflictions. 
Jesus doesn't throw them away. He treats them with gentleness. In fact, not long before that passage, Jesus said, I am gentle and humble of heart. And so, how do you approach a person in sin? If it's in anger or hostility or you think, all right, I've got to get the bat out. I've got to start swinging. And if they don't respond well, do you treat them as an enemy? If that's the case, you're, you're showing that it's really more about you than it is about Christ. For what, what do you think your tone would be if your chief desire was to rescue them? Again, would you be standing at the edge of the ship when he's overboard? You are stupid! Why are you standing so close to a place without a rail? What an idiot! Dummy! Is that what you would do if you see somebody falling overboard? You sit there and yell at him? I hope not. I hope you'd be looking for whatever you could do to rescue them. Pull them out. Because your goal and your attitude is to, to keep them from the danger that they're in. To get them out of it. Listen to Paul's instruction in, to Timothy in this regard. 2 Timothy 2.24 The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So this idea of gentleness, now it doesn't mean that you downplay the sin or that you cannot be firm or, or direct, that you have to have this quiet, squeaky voice. There's something that I need to tell you. But, you know, really, I, I'm not judging you. Uh, right? That's not gentleness. That's fear and timidity. <laughs> Right? Sometimes you, you need to be firm because you need to be honest. You need to be truthful. So it's okay saying, you know, that this is serious. This is important. You need to listen to me. But you can still do it in a humble way. The point is not to come in hostility, but rather with the desire to come alongside and to restore. In addition to being gentle, thirdly, we are to be humble. And it's interesting. Paul gives this characteristic more ink here in Galatians 6, than anything else. In verse 1, he says, Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. In verse 3, he says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Verse 4, it says, Let each one examine his own work. See, these are all traits of humility because Paul understands the greatest hindrance to coming alongside someone in a right way is pride. <laughs> Lack of humility. A feeling of superiority, of looking at someone in sin with contempt or this self-righteousness. Again, thinking that, well, I'm in a position, I'm a superior position, I'm going to come to them and tell them about their sin. Lack of humility says that you think you would never do what they've done. I would never be so stupid as to stand that close to the edge of the ship. I'd never do that. I'd never be so dumb to have a look at dirty magazines, have them in my house. I'm more godly than that. And if we're not careful, that's the attitude we can come, especially if somebody's struggling with something that you don't struggle with. The self-righteousness. And Paul says to that person in verse 3, you are think you are something when you are nothing. And so we always have to remember, before drawing attention to the speck, right, look at the log. That's really the first step in the process. Jesus began it back in Matthew 7 and then in Matthew 18 picks it up. Look first at yourself. Now on the flip side of this, this, this attitude of humility, it doesn't mean that you can say, well, 
Well, since I'm a sinner too, then uh, I guess I have no business pointing out their sin. And we talked about that a minute ago. But again, we see over and over and over again, Christ says he compels us, go, pursue. So in being humble, he's not saying don't pursue. But to confront in humility means to, it's just recognizing I as a sinner are coming to a fellow sinner. I who struggle with things and I need rescuing at times. I'm coming to do rescuing. It, it's just having a motive to men to restore their relationship with Christ. So I do it with grace and patience and love, but I do it. I do it. And listen, when someone comes to you, when they come to you and they point out some, something in your life, that listen to them, welcome their input. Are you so proud to think there's nothing that needs to be addressed or confronted in your life? Hear them out. They, they may be wrong. They, they may not be saying it in the best way or presenting it in the best way, but at least they're saying something. Maybe they're the only person. Again, that my buddy, nobody had ever talked to him about that. Even a guy that found it didn't say anything. Wasn't going to say anything. I mean, at least, at least he came to me, but listen. Listen to them. Hear them out. Take the opportunity to examine yourself. Looking back at the end of Galatians 6.2, we're reminded the goal of restoration, the goal of bearing one another's burdens. He says there is to fulfill the law of Christ. Paul sums that up, sums up the law of Christ in Galatians 5.14 when he says it is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we come alongside one another, we, we confront in order to show love to one another and also to honor Christ. Again, remember Matthew eighteen fifteen. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. You've won your brother. So your goal is to win them back, right? Your goal is to win them back to a right relationship with Christ, to win them back to a right relationship with the body of Christ, to win them back to a right relationship with you. This whole idea of fellowship. In fact, listen to 1 John 1, 6 and 7, where John says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. See, here here John shows that connection. That connection and fellowship with one another and with God and how sin is a hindrance to that. If we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and with God. Some believe that, you know what, this whole issue of confronting, it's unkind, it's unloving, it's it's cruel, it's divisive. But you know, the passage in John, many other texts, actually says it to the contrary. It brings unity when it's done in the way that God has designed it to be done. Do you know that? My relationship with that friend, with my friend, it was transformed that day. We spent a lot of time together after that. And we're open and transparent with one another in each other's lives. You know, by confronting his sin, it brought unity in that relationship, not division. God knows what he's doing. He's designed his church and he's pretty wise. It's amazing how it works when when we follow the, the way that God wants us to follow it. You're not, you're not promoting disunity in the body by confronting sin. If you do it God's way, you are actually promoting harmony. The city of Norwalk, 
In front of City Hall, there's a, there's a statue there. Um, it's a statue of a man named Jesus Garcia Corona. He lived in the early 1900s, the town of Nakazari, Nakazari, Mexico. Jesus worked as a locomotive engineer. And it was on November 7th in 1907 that there was a train that was carrying a large shipment of dynamite. It was parked at the train station there. But the dynamite had been mistakenly loaded in the two cars right behind the locomotive. It was enough dynamite that could have taken out the entire town. There was some probably 5,000 inhabitants. And the spark from the locomotive jumped onto boxes of dynamite, started a fire. Uh, there was no water available. The attempt to, to put it out by throwing dirt on it uh, didn't wasn't successful. And and so without regard for his own life, Jesus jumps into the locomotive and starts the train up to take it out of town. And he gets it to a safe enough distance away from the town, but before he could get away from the train, it exploded and he died. He's 24 years old, just about to be married. He paid the ultimate price in order to rescue thousands of people, many of them he didn't even know. He didn't think first of himself. He only was concerned about those who were in danger. I would ask you, how concerned are you for spiritual life of one another here, of those caught in sin, those in great danger? Like Jesus, will you act for the sake of another despite the risks, despite the personal sacrifices? Will you with grace and humility, will you persistently pursue the brother or sister in Christ who is caught in sin, will you seek to do that for the purity of Christ's bride? Now, we've had applications at the end of each of these messages on what's up on Sunday. And today's application, I'm not going to be announcing that anybody's up for church discipline here. But what I wanted to do, just to take a moment for us to pray that we would be more active in one another's lives. So that there won't be another day where somebody is brought up here. Because we've been so active and engaged and transparent and involved with each other. We've been pursuing one another persistently. So what I'd like to do is just just have you pray to the Lord for a moment. And then I'll join you. Let's do that. I'll be asking the Lord if there's sin in your life or... Maybe sin that you don't see, that, that God would bring someone to you and that you would be open to listen. Or maybe there's somebody that's on your heart that you know you need to talk to. Maybe the Spirit is bringing conviction that it's a person you know you've been needing to, to speak with and just have not been able to, or maybe you've not done it in a right way. Ask the Lord now to just reveal these things to you, strengthen you to do what He's called you to do. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this instruction from your word. It is a, a difficult instruction, Lord. But you have shown us by your own example that you are a rescuer. That you have gone after us. We who are in sin. You have pursued us persistently. What is it as Spurgeon said? You are the hound of heaven. We're so thankful. Lord, and I, Lord, I know that there may be some here that sin is in their life and they have never truly repented from it. They've never confessed it to you. They've never 
allowed you to rescue them. Lord, I pray that you would show them even now, please, the, the need to confess their sin and put their trust in you. Be forgiven that they may stand before you as part of that holy and blameless bride. I would ask, Lord, if there is sin in our life that you want dealt with, that you would bring that right person to come alongside us in gentleness and grace to point that out in our lives and that we would be willing to listen. Lord, if there's somebody we need to talk to, God, empower us to do that. We are, it is hard. It is difficult. And we know you want us to. We know it's the right thing to do. And I pray, God, you would make us those who, out of love for you and one another, would be willing to, to go and, and rescue, Lord, to go and help. For we do want to present you, Lord Jesus, with pure and holy bride that you died for and that you deserve. In your name we pray. Amen. And I'd like to close, if you could please stand reading again the passage from Paul in Ephesians 5. It's an appropriate word to have in our minds as we leave this morning. Again, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself Himself, the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Let's work this week to present the bridegroom with that pure and holy and blameless bride. May Christ be honored by what we do and say this week. Amen? Amen.